This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of the Quocast. And in this episode, I will be talking to engineer, producer and musician Andy Brook. But before I play you the interview that I conducted earlier today via Zoom, if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, then you can email quocast at outlook.com. That's quocast at outlook.com. You can tweet at the quocast on Twitter or go to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the quocast. Thanks, Andy, for joining us on this edition of uh, the Quocast. It's a delight to have you because for the last few years, people have heard your name, seen it on Quo-related stuff. But how did you get involved with Status Quo and, and Francis in the first place? First off, Jamie, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Much, much appreciated. I first met Francis um, when I was probably about 12. Because I, I was I was at school with one of his sons with Kieran, and um, I went I went around there to have a jam, just a guitar jam. So that was that was then. Then then fast forward many years later, um, I was playing in a band called Makara, and Makara did a number of uh, quo supports in the late two thousand, say two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That was the first time I actually saw States Quo play live. So we'd, we'd we'd opened up for them, and I kind of they were always on my radar, but I'd never kind of got into them. And then um, I saw them play at Holcomb Hall. Um, they were they were superb, but what I really noticed was the audience reaction. It's like they they, they have it's not just a crowd; it's they're, they're fans, and it was really quite something to witness. So okay, I, I, I get it. I kind of see what see see what's happening there. And then I, I've I've been engineering and producing myself since um, early two thousands, but it just it just so happened that at at one point um, it was kind of the perfect storm. Francis was looking for a new engineer. I just finished the job that I was on at that point in time, so it kind of works out that I went up to see him and we, we did a few bits here and there. And it's that you know that that was kind of the beginning of it, really. Uh, we went on to work on it was it was halfway through the Rossi Ricard album that I picked up the range there, um, so we did that, and then we moved on to do uh, Backbone much further down the line, which was which was great. It was a really 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 joyous project to work on that one. Must have been quite nerve wracking though, because there's a lot of people that have been in your position in the past and how do, how do you go about kind of putting your own mark on it when a band has recorded so many albums so with specifically with quote I'm, I'm just doing that as an engineering role so i don't believe it's the engineer's point to make a mark on anything at all you're there to facilitate the recording of the album um if anyone's going to do that it's, it's the person that's in the, the in the producer seat and this in this case it's francis was producing it so I think he's done enough co records in the past to be able to make his mark on this one. So that was, you know, that's not for me to really kind of comment on. I'm just there for a technical side of things and maybe as, as something to bounce ideas off, you know. But yeah, it was nerve wracking. I think um, it's like any new job you do. Let's, let's, let's take it out of context for, for, for a moment. It's if you start a job as a teacher, you go to a new school. It doesn't matter how many years you spent as a teacher before that, you're going to be nervous on your first day. And you're probably going to make mistakes, but it's only once you've kind of you, you, you've breached that that barrage, that that barricade of fire, that um, you kind of get comfortable with it. I think so. It was it, it, he's he's been a pleasure to work with. I've really you know, it's it's been as much as a pleasure as as a learning curve as well because there's you know he has a lot of knowledge to impart and that's fantastic. So I've kind of not only have I had a job for it, but I've had a degree of education from him as well, which is really good. Yeah, because before you, it was Greg Jackman. That That's did, correct. Yep. Yeah, that was engineer. Yeah. 
So I worked, I, I, as part of Makara, we recorded with Greg. So I've known Greg quite well. Uh, Greg was Greg was lovely, great guy. He's got this, this huge, huge um, discography of wonderful records. Probably the one that really sticks out was the Kiss from a Rose by Seal that he did. But honestly, we, we could spend a whole 45 minutes talking about Greg Jackman's accomplishments. He's, he's really, he really does have that all behind him. But it's, I think with, with Greg, it stems back from his his dad was the, um, I might need to double check this, but I think it was the trombone player on um, on some of the early Beatles records. Um, so he's got he's got this, it's not just him, but it's, his whole family is kind of soaked in this prestige of, of rock and roll music. It's very, yeah, he's and I, I learned a lot from Greg as well. Obviously, because when you when you move into these sort of situations, there's always a handover period. Um, yeah, and he, he just he, he taught me everything he could in the period that we had, and we just we kind of progressed it from there. But he was you know he was always very uh, supportive, Greg. Yeah. Before this podcast, we asked some questions of people, and I feel like because we're at this moment, we're talking about. Uh, your engineering specifically on on um, crow related stuff uh, i've got a couple of questions from people that hopefully you can answer i'm sure you can brian asks why wasn't backbone louder i think you have to put this again in context it's like if you look at the the history of recorded music the technology is still very fresh it's, it's only been around for what 70 years that we've been releasing pop records uh using the the, the media of recorded formats and it's progressively got louder and louder and louder. And I'm sure some of your listeners and some, and some of your, your, your the people that subscribe to the podcast will be aware of what we call the loudness wars. Um, and it got to a point whereby, because we had the, the luxury of the digital format that we could record infinitely louder than we could do with analog recordings, uh, the, the difference being with analog tape and so forth, you can drive it to a point where it actually it, it naturally distorts, but we get these rich harmonics, which don't sound erroneous to our ears, but with the digital format, there's only so far you can push it until digital compression kicks into it and becomes part of the actual sound that you're hearing. Um, I, for one, I, I think it's, what, at the other day, when you're making a record, you're making a document of, of the performance of the song that you're recording. And when you smash it to pieces with, with limiters and make it super, super loud, you're not getting those dynamics across. And I think we've, we, I, I hope, I hope, uh, we've come to a point in recorded music whereby things are starting to be on the down a bit more. It's it's like that we're starting to play. Uh, we're, we're sympathising with the nuances of the dynamic, dynamics in the music as opposed to trying to make it as loud as possible. To paraphrase, I did this interview with Sound on Sound, which is quite a lengthy six-page article. There was a quote I had in there from Francis, and and at the end of the day, it surmises the fact that if you want it to be louder, you have the facility to do that at home. You just crank the volume. But we're not going to go out there and try and compete with the likes of Kanye or people that are really kind of smashing this, these, these limits. It's just that it, it, it doesn't make any sense. If you want louder, turn it up. And if you were to compare that to the earlier recordings, I mean, if you, if you even if you just look at Quo stuff, um, it's not it's not a quiet record by any means. Backbone, we could have made it louder. In fact, in fact, we did make it louder to begin with, and then we just felt that the dynamics of the music were compromised, so we backed it off a little bit. So at the end of the day, it's, it's about it's about letting music speak for itself, I think, and that's kind of what Francis wanted from it. So that sound on sound interview is is really interesting. Um, the article that you you did, the link will be in the description. There's a quote in there from Francis that I found was was quite interesting, where he said that when you were mastering that record, originally it kind of sounded like other Quo things that they'd done, like that Quo sound, and then they kind of tweaked it a little bit and it had this different sound to it. Yeah. 
So uh, you think when we, we've sat, we've sat with that record for quite a number of months, mixing and, and doing all kinds of things with it. And it got to a point whereby I think Francis was, was very happy with how it sounded. So it's the, the, the issue has been if we, if we would send it out of house for mastering, it, which it might change drastically. So we weren't going to go do that. So he gave me some time to work up a master. And then we came back to listen to it. It, it, it did. It sounded very quo-like and it wasn't what we'd been listening to previously. So I, I, I'd, I'd uh, performed routine um, processes like widening the stereo spectrum using multiband compressors. I might be losing a few listeners here, but just I'm going to go through what we did. Yeah, go ahead. EQ stuff uh, where we were just brightening the top end, adding a bit of air, etc. You know, uh, restraining the bottom. And it's it. I thought it sounded great, but it's it. At the end of the day, there's there's only so many objective things you can do in mastering. And at the end of the day, the call is a very subjective one, and it comes down to really what the producer wants, and especially when it's when it's um. For, for, I think was was a very important record for Quo, um, being the first one since since uh, obviously the record passed. But it sonically it, it, it developed to something very quickly in the mastering process that wasn't akin to what it sounded like in the mixing process. So we just dialed it all back and we we did the, the not the bare minimum, but just what was necessary to release it as a master. And it sounded great. We we had a few people in to listen to it, and they, they, everyone was joyous about it. It was a joyous affair, you know. Yeah, to to me, a lot of the songs on that album, like Liberty Lane, Cut Me Some Slacker, up there with some of the best that they've ever recorded. Uh, we've got a second question here from Charlie, who says, who thought that snare sound on Backbone was a good idea? Everybody. I'll leave it there. Everyone thought it was a good idea. Um, it, was, it was the um, summation of the, the... I think, if I remember rightly, Leon used a, a stone Noonan Noonan snare. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, do you know what? I would defend that till the cows come home. I thought it was great. Francis thought it was great. No arguments. But again, I think you'll find this with a lot of records. Um, everybody has their own opinions about how it should sound, could have sounded, and would sound if they'd have mixed it themselves. And you, you can't please everybody. Do you think there's somewhat of an expectation because they go and see a band live and the sonics are kind of different? And then you you listen to a recorded sound and you've maybe EQ'd it and changed it. And, you know, maybe there's kind of a different expectation. Yeah. I think, I think there's a discussion there. Um, you, I mean, you have to bear in mind as well, when you go to see a, a live performance, there's a lot of EQ and compression going on. And there's a lot of dynamic processing at that point in time as well. So it's not just, it's not a case of just sticking an SM57 in front of a snare and, and just hitting it. There really is a lot of, of stuff that it's taken to account. There. I think, I think, um, Andy May has been, been the front house engineer for quite for, 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 for years. And I, I think what, what's quite incredible is the way that when, when you listen to him mix a show, it sounds pristine. And it does. I, I, I've, I've heard some of the, the shows that he mixes. It sounds like a record. I think he's great. So I think there's, there is the, 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 the obvious difference is the temporal nature of a gig. You go to, you go to a show, it happens. And all you're left with is the the memory of it, or maybe there's some bad YouTube recordings on there which don't really do any justice to the audio. But you're just you're left with the vibe, with the enthusiasm that you had when you were in the audience. Uh, but with with a record, I mean, it's it is again, it's a document of of a, of, a, of a place and time, and and you you have the chance to review it as many times as you like, whether you love it or you want to pick fault with it. I mean, there is that's the huge that's the biggest difference for me, not the technical side of it. But it's just the implementation of it. You can either, you can listen to a record many many times, but as a gig, as a gig goer, you're there for that for that forty five minutes or that hour and a half, and that's it. You're just left with the memory. Yeah, 
Uh, speaking of live performance, uh, you've just come off tour with Francis on his I Talk Too Much tour. Um, how was that? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I re- really enjoyed it. Um, we, we, we were subject to the issues surrounding COVID-19 and, and the, the, um, the unfortunate cancellation or postponement of shows in that respect. But um, I think it was, it was brave to, um, to put the show back out on the road as, as soon as it did go out. I mean, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, Jamie, but it was when the lockdown actually began, it was the last show that was actually on the road at that point in time. And we, we got called in a couple of days before the official announcement that everything had to be called in. I think that was the right decision. Obviously, you're just you're kind of geared up to do 60 dates. It's like, yeah, it's going to be great fun. Um, and then you're going home after four. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But rest assured, as soon as the, the restrictions were lifted, and I mean, that, that tour moved uh, twice, I think it was, before the final uh, rescheduling. And then the, the when when we got to July nineteenth, we lost three weeks of dates before that. Uh, so that was it was supposed to start the beginning of uh, sorry the end of June, but July nineteenth, what, what so called Freedom Day was the day that it actually went back out on the road. So we were kind of straight back out there. So Francis last artist to go out, and first artist to come back out again. So that was that was fun. We didn't do the Welsh dates, we didn't do the Scottish dates, but that's that's circumstances beyond our control. But it's. He's a very, I, I don't know if, did you manage to get to the show yourself, Jamie? I did, yeah. I, I went to Worthing a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, so I, th- I think essentially that format-wise, it, it's the same as a couple of years ago, but obviously the stories are different. I mean, it's, it's, it's not scripted, but there are the same stories that will pop up from time to time. I just, I find, I find him to be a very engaging and genuine storyteller. And he's, he's very funny to boot as well with it. So it's, 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 it's definitely not a quote show. It's 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 um it's something more than that. But it was it was it was really enjoyable to be part of that. I, I enjoyed it immensely. It's kind of unique, actually. I I remember that the lights were up, you know, which is kind of unusual for going to see something, and uh, he so he could see everybody in the audience. And I remember there was somebody that was shouting in the audience, and he went, "Oh, just because you've got a waistcoat, you know, it's like." Uh, it, it was kind of this banter back and forth, I guess. That uh, well, he's been he's been perfecting that over the years with Quo. Uh, but in this instance, I guess it's a different thing. Like you said, it was it was uh, mostly unscripted. Absolutely, absolutely. I think if you're if you're doing the same show night after night, then there might be jokes or or things that you might find yourself repeating. But it, it's not scripted. But obviously, I think with something like that, you have to understand it. it needs to It needs to follow some kind of chronological format. So he's going to talk about the early years, and then talk about this, that, and the other. So whilst it's not scripted, there are things that you know he he makes sure that he covers. But I just I really enjoyed the show night after night. I mean, I know I understand what you mean about the lights. It was so that you could see the people in the first few rows, so that there was actually a connection there, which is fantastic. Um, and it is a very different arena to Quo because you just, I, I think it's, there's that certain level of audience engagement when you've got a few hundred people in a room as opposed to a few thousand. Um, obviously it becomes a lot more intimate. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a house party, but it's, it's still a much smaller number than you would get with a Quo show. Yeah. I just, and, and obviously, um, Mick Wall was comparing for that as well. I think Mick's lovely is a wonderful guy and he's, he's very knowledgeable about Quo and, and, uh, their, their history. Um, having written, uh, I think it's two books he's done. It might even be more. I'm not, I'm not not entirely sure, so you might have to correct me there. But yeah, it was great. It was just great being on the road with him. You finished um, not that long ago, and then you're out on another tour. You went went on tour with the Middle Night Men, which you've just come up off of. Uh, which you're, it's a band that you're in with with Leon, 
Um, tell, tell us about that. How did all that come about? So the Middle Light Men is the brainchild of Nick Hughes. And Nick, Nick Hughes has been a gig and session musician around London and the UK for, for many years. So he's played with the likes of uh, Terrorvision, um, the Yo-Yos, which is a, was an offshoot of the, the Wild Hearts and uh, the Professionals, um, the Love Zombies, which is another band that I think you might be familiar with. So Nick wanted to do, after all these years, he wanted to do a solo project whereby he he just pull in friends to kind of cover it. So he asked me to produce it, and that's fine. So we ended up recording it. We had all these colourful characters coming in to do bits and pieces. Uh, the first of which was Leon coming in to do drums because Leon, Leon and, and Nick have, have a history going back to university time. So they and they've played in, in, in many subsequent bands together, such as Scar Wars and the Crane Brothers and so forth. But yeah, so Leon, Leon was in for a couple of days, and he, you know he's he's an exceptional drummer. I have to I, have to, I can't I can't speak too highly of Leon he's just fantastic he will listen to a song two three times tops just have all the nuances and he'll be able to lay it down in a couple of takes we discussed this earlier on but I must say as well he's also an exceptionally good guitar player and bass player and singer he's just kind of he's got the whole thing going on so you know um, he's, he's definitely a real asset to any band or group that he plays in so that that was that was the record but that was recorded back in in 2019 now, obviously, something happened in March 2020, so the original release got kind of shelved, but there were still singles put out, and then eventually the record was released uh, earlier this year. So that was th- these, this little tour that we've just got back off was the um, that was the first live performances of it. And the band that you the band that have gone out on tour aren't necessarily the ones that have appeared on the on the record because times have moved on and people have kind of find different roles. I myself played played uh, about. My thirty seconds of guitar on the record because I was producing it. It wasn't my job to do that. So most of the re- what record is is Nick playing guitars and there's a couple of people doing guest spots here and there. But um, the live shows have been good. We've 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 uh, th- we did three shows with the Wild Hearts, um, which have a great audience, and then we did a show there with Terrorvision last week at uh, Wolverhampton, which again I think Terrorvision are a, a very underrated UK band, fantastic live band. I mean, I, I know they had they were really really big in the mid nineties, but they're still going strong and they're still an, an amazing band to watch live. But there's a lot of us. There's, there's 10 people in this band. <laughs> I know. There's quite so a it, few, isn't there? Is it, it is, how, yes. how much, I mean, there's so much, um, so many band members and so little room on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that kind of summarizes it all. Particularly when you've got, um, so with the Wild Hearts shows, we had the, the Wild Hearts were headlining, obviously, so their gear's all on stage. And then you've got Those Damn Crows. I don't know if you're familiar with that band. Um, that, that I think they're fantastic. So then you've got their backline, and then you need to fit us on at the front. So that's three drum kits on the stage, three sets of amps. Um, and there's all in in the middle night, man. You've got four guitar players. Uh, you've got two backing singers. You've got two piece brass section. You've got the bass player, and then the drummer, uh, and then you've got two backing vocalists. So it's just it's it basically when you've got so much gear on stage, it means that we just take up the front line because you can't go backward, you can't go forward. You just have to be kind of the, the edge of the stage. But it's fun, you know. You, you you have to work to your means, and if we if we if you're limited by the space that we've got, then that you just make the most of it. But it was a baptism of fire. I mean, having a band where the first gig is supporting the Wild Hearts, I thought was quite ambitious. But it, it, you have to do your first gig somewhere, and it might as well be there at Manchester. The whole thing seems really well choreographed because obviously you will go out in. Uh, in specific outfits and it's it's all tailored to a certain thing yeah um again this is, this is all kind of down to nick nick's direction um he wanted to produce something which was more of a um a conglomerative more not not a band 
per se as, as more of a troop. So the, the membership isn't actually fixed, although it tends to be the same people playing it. But he also wanted to kind of attribute it to um, being a troop of superheroes. He loves the whole kind of superhero take on it. I don't know if you might have come across Heroin Heights, which is a, it's a song about uh, female empowerment, but it kind of focuses on the superhero characters. Um, it just, it's just, it's going for the more kind of fun side of rock and roll, I guess. It's the fact that we 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 put these costumes on and we become superheroes for forty five minutes and do this, that, and the other. But he's he's kind of built this whole um, there's this whole kind of anthology around it, whereby there's there's a series of videos where all, and, and the, the videos that he's put out they're very high production quality, which he's focused on. And it's just I, I think it's for him it's a chance to do something off his own back, but to really kind of push it. So he's put. He's put everything he can into it. It's like every waking minute is devoted to the Midnight Men. Apart from when he's doing sessions for every other band in the world that he plays for. Um, he's a busy guy, Nick Hughes. So I've, I've enjoyed being on board for that. We have the album launch coming out on October the 14th. That's at the uh, Underworld in Camden. And fortunately for us, that is a headline slot there. So we don't need to worry about falling off the stage. We can actually t- you know, take our time and set some space up. Um, so that'd be a good one. So October the 14th, we've got the Fiasco's Hey You Guys and Hot Damn, all the supports. Um, and Hey You Guys features Dave Draper. Dave Draper was the um, was the mixer on the Midnight Men album. So although we produced it here at mine, we sent it off to him to get another pair of ears on. But he's also done um, uh, a lot of the Wild Heart stuff. He's kind of their, he's their go-to guy. Uh, but that'd be a good, good one. October 14th. Hope to see you there, Jamie. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. 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 Um, yeah, it's a few days after my son's birthday, so we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, yeah, so uh, you've just finished that support slot um, with those couple of bands that you mentioned, and now you're you're kind of preparing to do something else. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> I do. I do. I love sleeping. Sleeping is my it literally is my favourite place to be, whether it's on the tour bus or in my bedroom or on the sofa. I love sleeping. But there's there's only so many hours a day you can sleep without actually getting anything done. So if it's not recording music, which is kind of my my, my main gig, as it were, it's 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 about playing it. But yeah, I, so so we just just finished the Midnight Man stuff, and this Thursday I've got the album launch for Rich Ragney and the Digressions, which uh, I play keyboards for in that one. Um, again, it was it was it was a project I've known Rich Ragney for many many years. Um, he's a fantastic singer songwriter. You think so, somewhere across between Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen, but he's 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 Canadian by origin, but he's ended up in London and then now in, in Warwickshire where he resides uh, via New York. So he's he's been around and he's been places. But this album here was um, his was the continuation of his solo effort. So he he did an album uh, in 2019 called um, Like We Never Make It. And I played a bit on that one. Um, and then this this next album that's just come out, Beyond Nostalgia and Heart Take, was more of a concerted band effort because we already had the players in place there. But it's one of those situations, again, where I've been asked to produce an album and I've ended up playing in the band. It's, ne- it's never intentional, but it's just you, you get so so into what it is you're working. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, but I'm actually a guitar player, so to be asked to play keyboards was a bit of a... Uh, an odd choice, but I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's fun to kind of reinvent yourself and try something that you is not second nature to you, but is more of a second study, you know? As we've established, uh, you are involved in a lot of things and people in the Crow Camp will be familiar with uh, an album that you helped create with Francis and Lee O'Brien um, earlier this year. Now, we've had Lee on the, the podcast previously. He had lots of praise for you. 
um, and your input into the project. What was it like working with him? I just paid him 50 quid to say that. That was all. <laughs> a good reaction out of him. Um, no, it was, it was, you know, that was a lovely album to do. I think the, the, the thing to, to understand is that originally it was just going to be recording a couple of demos for, for Lee, but there was something really special there. And I, th- I think Francis has said this in interviews as well. It's like when, when, when Francis kind of came down to get involved in it, it was like, yeah, okay, this is, we, we're going to take this to the next level. And I think with without Francis's involvement, it might not have gone as, as, as far as it did. I mean, production-wise, it, it's it, there's been a lot of time spent on it. You can hear that in the way that it comes across as a record. I loved Lee's voice the first time I heard it. I had there was a there was a voice note that was sent over to me um, from Lee via Francis, uh, which I just thought he sounded like uh, Chris Difford from from Squeeze, and there was the, the, something really quite magical about it. And he writes very honest, heartfelt lyrics. I just you know, it was it was a great project to work on. Again, it's it's another one of these whereby there's there's been there's been no live band shows, and it's all been a, a, on account of COVID causing issues that they can't get a band together, can't get venues booked. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but at the moment in this country, booking a venue for a gig has become increasingly harder because everybody that was scheduled to be gigging earlier on in the year has had to push things back to a later date and so forth. So club gigs, arena gigs and so forth, it kind of gets really tricky to get stuff booked in. So we wait, we're still waiting for the, the Lee O'Brien album launch, but fingers crossed that will be happening at some point soon. And again, um, we, 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 dis- we discussed this with Lee before, so I'm, g- I'm going to be doing guitar duties on that one. And then prospectively, Leon will be doing drums and Nick Hughes will be playing bass on that one. But it kind of all depends when it, when it all actually finally happens, but I'm looking forward to it. I was supposed to do, supposed to do a show with Lee there in the middle of the uh, Talk Too Much tour. But again, because of COVID restrictions, couldn't actually make the make the event. It would it would have been um, unwise to to leave the tour as soon as everybody's going in in, in, a, in a COVID safe bubble uh, to go do a gig in front of a couple of hundred people and then come back. Just you, you can't risk it. Not not when not not when there's other people's health is involved. I don't think. But it did mean that I learned all the parts. And these and bearing in mind that the guitar on that on that album is all by Francis. So there's some there's some really really cool tasty parts in there. So I spent a few days learning all those bits and pieces. So I'm kind of, I'm excited to get to a point where, whereby we can perform that live and I get to play that, but I'm not sure when that's going to be just yet. Yeah, I, I think some fans would say that there are some very distinctively Francis sounds on that album. As a producer and as an engineer and somebody who has spent their whole life in music, is it down to the equipment he's using the technique of production or his playing um i honestly without without sounding too too blase but i think it's all down to what's in the fingers there's one guy that plays like that and that's going to be him and everything else is a plus i've always always uh, believed the the idiom that a good record starts with the player and then with the the, the, with the, the equipment and then with the room and that's before you kind of get any mics or anything involved in it but he's got a very very unique style of playing i think i think um Sometimes uh, it's it's not really he's not given the, um, the the degree of admiration that I think he's due because I think he's a fantastic blues guitar player. Really, really is quite something to watch. And obviously, I'm, I'll, I'll be sitting in the studio with him, and we, we you know there's a professional courtesy that we keep going and stuff. But I do find myself sometimes thinking, "Wow, that was that was that was something." Well, that lick that lick was amazing. And you know, you just you you enjoy working with people who can who can deliver such performances. It's funny you say about the technology and so forth. I think those those things do change, but at, at the core essence of it, it is about the player. That's what that's what makes the sound. Uh, there there will be there will be aficionados and audiophiles out there who will argue with me to the nth degree about that. But 
I'm willing to take on that challenge. <laughs> but, uh, I just I think, you know, it's, it's that. It's the player, the equipment, and then the room. And then we could talk about mics, we could talk about preamps, we could talk about compressors, EQs, reverse, and all, all the other kind of jazz that goes with it afterwards. I'm, I'm very much downplaying the role of an engineer and a producer there, but it, it's the truth. It, it's 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 not a role that that validates what what musician does. You're just there to um, accommodate the musician. You know, you're there, you're, you're, your your job is as a facilitator. That's it. How does it feel for you that Francis kind of trusts your opinion? You know, given that he's had all that success, and you are kind of yeah, well, you're his main engineer. Um, it's it's great. It, it's it's to, to have any sort of level. Of, I mean. Let me go back a bit. It's, it's like anybody you work with, you have to have a level of trust. And, and then, you know, it's like you you have to be able to com- be confident to answer a question honestly. I mean, I have worked with people in the past who've, who've, who've asked me, was that any good? And I'd be lying if I said it was. So you need to be delicate how you handle things. But I think as long as you're honest with people, then they, they get to trust you. Now, put that into the situation with Francis, the fact that, like, as I've always said, it's like he does brilliant work consistently. So there is, there's none of that kind of um, walking on eggshells at all, and I, I think it's I'm I'm, I'm very um, I'm very grateful that I get to be completely honest about things. It's like it's like, what do you think of that? It's like oh, I really like it, or or it's or maybe maybe if you try another take, and not because it's bad, but because the thing is with Francis is very good at improvising, very very good. It's like so he can do a take on a solo, and it, he can go back again and do another one. It's completely different, but. It's kind of endless. There needs to be a point where you call it. It's like, yeah, we, we've got we've got seven different solos. They're all they're all brilliant. Got to pick one and go with that. See, I I I I do understand, and and I've I've seen stuff on forums whereby um, people have voiced their um, their opinions about me working as his engineer, and that's I, I completely get it. For every every situation that you find yourself in, there's always going to be other people that want to be in that position, and they'll find it. A bit of a snub to not be themselves, and uh, I'm not going to get political about it. But it's, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have got the job. I, I understand that, and, and I understand that a lot of people would see it in that respect as well. And it's kind of funny as well, considering in the the uh, what I call the Quo universe, you're involved with Leon in other ways, and so it's not just Francis that you're uh, that you have kind of a rapport with. Well, Leon, Leon, I originally met playing in Makara, so this was this was. Um, I think this would have been when Matt Letley was the drummer mm-hmm. originally. Um, so we did we did a few shows in that respect, and it's just a it's just a lovely guy, a nice guy, really really nice guy. And as I said to you before, he's such a talented musician, um, and it, it, it feels like we've we've we keep bumping into each other in different arenas and different different spheres. But obviously now with the Midnight Men, it's I'm, I'm playing with him a lot at this point in time. Um, so he's kind of for me, he's one of those characters that um, pops into your life and just cuts keeps yo-yoing in and out over, over the years but i, I like I, I can't speak highly enough of leon it's fantastic though really really is something you probably can't divulge this but is francis actually working on anything at the moment uh, not to my knowledge if he is i'm not involved in it so <laughs> can't no no i think i think um i think that was that was that was a long tour so it, it, the now that the next project to look at is um is the quo quo gigs coming up next year so um i think it's i believe it's the end of february it starts um, and that's that. That obviously is the. Um, it's not the backbone tour, but it is what what was going to happen around that time. Um, for me personally, it's a shame that the backbone tour didn't didn't run because we were, we were, as well as working the tour, I was due to perform with the Digressions as the support act for the UK dates. 
and obviously every everybody in the digressions camp was very excited about it but it it, it is what it is sometimes these things don't pan out how you play them uh, but uh nobody saw what happened coming no one no one could have uh seen the whole whole situation with covid developing as it did so are you are you working on the tour that's now scheduled i will be i will be, i will be guitar teching for this tour yet which would be a very different uh form of tour into what we did for talk too much obviously there's a lot more people involved there's a much much bigger production you know i'm looking forward to that that's exciting um but it's uh, for, for me it's a good good deal in the future at the moment but uh preparations i think will, will ensue quite quite soon for that but in the meantime for me it's it, it now, now that the touring stopped it's kind of back to work in the studio catching up with all these eps and records that i'm supposed to have finished and kind of getting deadlines ticked off how do you go about managing that because you know every production has a different workflow and it must be quite difficult to remember everything i make a lot of notes a lot of notes um i have pads and pads full of notes and i, I tend to find the written word is is much more accessible than than when you're typing stuff out um so it's just it's, it's coming back to a, a point of recall and I think when you any any record that you work on, you get to a certain point in it. If you if you need to drop tools because something else has come across as a, a priority, um, if you've spent enough time on it, when you pick it up again, you, you kind of you know where you left off. So it's just a matter of continuation. And sometimes a bit of distance is actually a welcome thing. You can get really kind of engrossed in a mix or in a project, and it's sounding great. But then you come back to it a week later, you think, and it, it, you have a, a a eureka moment. A light bulb goes off. It's like okay. We just got to do this, this, and this, and then it's, it saves you so much more time in the end. You could spend hours trying to just get this EQ right or get this snare right or this, that, and the other. Um, bit of distance, come back to it. It's like, wow, okay, just got to do a little tweak in it. It's, it's Bob's your uncle. Yeah. So with uh, with the Middle Night Men, are hmm. you planning any, any extra, well, is, is Nick planning any extra EPs or albums or anything, or are you just kind of waiting for the album like the first album launch i think i think we get to the first album launch is the current plan um and then for the rest of the year we do have another number of other dates we're doing um we're doing the foundry in sheffield with the with uh terrorvision that's on the 5th of november and then we've got uh another date with the wild hearts in december for their christmas shindig and then I, i'm not sure if you heard of the, the, the eureka machines so that that features chris catalyst and chris Catalyst is another one of these guys who's he's a session musician that plays in all all these bands across across the uk uh, but eureka machines is is kind of his pop rock power punk outfit fantastic band i've, I've played with them over the years uh, but they, they're doing a christmas bash at the brudenelle social club in leeds so we're on the bill for that as well so we've got four more shows for this year and then um we'll see what nick wants to do after that hopefully it'll be another album and another tour and so forth but it's, it, I, I don't i don't know is the honest answer at this stage i can't really say i'm guessing he's someone that really is like bursting with ideas and not enough time to do them oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah he's, he's very fruitful fruitful for ideas and again much the same as leon I, I think i think nick is a wonderful musician very talented guy very talented writer as well very surprised to hear him play trumpet because that is actually that's that's kind of his main gig is as a trumpet player obviously for the middle night man he's he's the guitarist and the vocalist and the songwriter and and the curator is is what he's come to know because obviously as I said before it's a floating membership but he's he's the one kind of constant within it yeah well I will I will let you go because I'm sure you're extremely busy um, with lots of things but thank you so much for appearing on the podcast 
My it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry it took so long to get around of it, but as as we discussed, it's like when when you're in the middle of tours and stuff, it's really kind of hard to get a stable internet connection for 45 minutes. It just doesn't happen. So I'm sorry we had to wait so long for this. Mm-hmm.